Hello, hello. You have assembled upon our new podcast, Test Tubes and Cauldrons, where we are going to talk about the intersection of science and spirituality. In history, it was really common for science to be intertwined with spirituality, and some of the most well-known scientists followed ancient spiritual philosophies. But nowadays, the two are separated, and people claim that they can't coexist. All three of us, a part of this podcast, are extremely passionate about both science and the occult. So here, it's all about returning to the ancient roots where these subjects were one. Our episodes on this podcast will rotate between a scientific hypothesis and our own current opinions on topics within the occult community. But before we get started in this episode, I do want to put out a slight disclaimer. In our attempts to understand the metaphysical through a scientific lens, many of our thoughts and our hypotheses are simply unverified personal gnosis, and that's totally okay. But as such, we always encourage our listeners to do your own research, and all episode descriptions will have reference articles that we have read through to develop our own opinions. You don't have to agree with us. The host probably won't always agree either, but that's the beauty of discussion. So without any further ado... Let's go ahead and introduce ourselves. I'll go first. Hi, everyone. I'm Astra. I'm a graduate student currently pursuing my PhD in biochemistry. I began my journey in the occult primarily as a folk practitioner for about three years. And then I recently began diving into the ceremonial realm of magic. I focused first on planetary magic, and I consider myself to be a planetary magician. But now I've begun digging into hermeticism and consider myself to be a budding hermeticist. Alchemy has been my new love and fascination recently, so that's really the subject that I've been diving deep into recently. Given my love for science and both like both science and the metaphysical, I've always been really curious about finding connections between the two, and that was a big part of my practice when I started, and it continues to play a very important daily role. Like most grad students, I have a really unhealthy caffeine addiction. I'm currently drinking coffee, even though it is three o'clock in the afternoon for me. Um, And when I'm not reading for research or reading for my occult studies, I really enjoy a good high fantasy read. Just a random recommendation kind of being thrown in here. If you haven't read anything by Brandon Sanderson, you are seriously missing out. So hop to it. All right. Who wants to go next? Hello, um, I'm Hanny. I'm also a graduate student. Um, My background is in biochemistry, but I'm currently doing a PhD in an infectious disease lab, which feels awfully prescient at the moment. My practice is predominantly Hellenistic, although in recent months I've been getting more interested in uh, Druidry and Herbalism, particularly because the place where I'm living is um, has quite a rich history of Druid practice. Because my background is Hellenistic, I've always been interested in the kind of intersection of science and philosophy and how that's been integrated into belief in the divine. So I'm really interested in that kind of historical mesh with the occult and how those two paths have diverged over time. Alrighty. <laughs> I'm, I'm Felicity Orfell. I'm a historical interpreter with a previous degree in new media. Everyone always asks me what that is, so I'll just tell you. New media is basically where, where technology and science meet art. That is, of course, a very broad subject. I'll probably touch upon it at various times. That's basically the gist of it, though. However, I come from a, a very scientific family and I'm a climate activist, so my love of science and desire to learn has pretty much been part of most of my life. 
my path in spirituality has been quite, quite eclectic, though pretty much three years ago it took a turn towards Hellenism, and that has been my primary path ever since. As I mentioned, when there's not a pandemic that shuts down museums, <laughs> I work as a <laughs> historical interpreter, so the history of witchcraft and the occult is something that is not only fascinating to me, but pretty much paramount in my practice, and then how that intersects with philosophy and science as well. Awesome. Well, there you have it. We are your hosts for this podcast. If any of you have any questions about kind of our lives, what we do, or our practices, you're welcome to ask about it. Um, we might address it later on. So one of the things that we decided to do on this podcast, kind of just for fun, <laughs> because we're nerds and we fully you know, accept that, is a segment called What Happened on This Day? Now, full transparency, we are recording ahead of time pretty significantly, so this probably isn't going to be the day that you're actually going to listen to the episode. But currently, it is January 23rd, 2021, and on this day, on January 11th in 1922, the first injection of insulin was given to a 14-year-old diabetic named Leonard Thompson, who was close to death. But when he was given this injection, it caused a severe allergic reaction. However, thanks to the incredible work of a biochemist by the name of James Collip, the second injection, which was given on January 23rd, this day in 1922, it brought Leonard out of his coma and the injection was a resounding success. So the very first successful injection of insulin happened on this day in 1922. Pretty awesome way to start the episode. Yes. Okay. (laughs) All about this scientific success. So this week's topic, we're going to focus on fact versus fiction. Is there worth in trying to come up with scientific theories that support magical experience? Or does that kind of ruin everything? So I guess we'll just see who wants to go first. No one volunteers. I'm going to pick people. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess I really think this... It depends on your motivation behind being interested in the occult. And I think... Your, your model of how your occult practice works also plays into this. If you're of a more kind of psychological model, then sometimes it, if, um, tying things back to science, understanding that there is a placebo effect, understanding that things happening in your mind are directly influenced by the world around you, uh, that can be very affirming and that, that can actually benefit your practice. And some people find that understanding that mechanism sort of helps to make things more, more reproducible. But I do think, and at least partly for myself, having some sense of the divine being unknowable is, it adds a little bit to the the mystery. And uh, that's something that I think a lot of people enjoy as well. Yeah, I just jumping off of that, I, well, I also find sort of proof, and I put that in quotes, because we know proof is sort of its own debatable topic, what is proof? But to say something has been like proven scientifically or that it can be proven through scientific theory, well, that can be really affirming and exciting. And I, for one, love to see it. Personally, the element of mystery is an integral part of my own practice, as well as many others. I personally don't really believe that everything can be known just based on just how our brains are. We are limited. Our brains are limited organs. So by that logic, our Our brains can't really know beyond their capacity to know, although we can speculate. One of the things I wanted to bring up in this regards was from my own practice, from a more Hellenism viewpoint, is the Orphics versus the Pythagoreans. So Orphism and Pythagoreanism were two different sects in the Hellenic world. Orphism 
considered things like mysteries, specifically the mysteries of Dionysus, to be a path towards enlightenment. Now, the whole reason they were mysteries is that they were not revealed to everybody. You you couldn't just sort of stumble upon them on your own. You had to go through a whole path to be revealed these mysteries. And once you were revealed these mysteries, it would offer you a sort of spiritual, for lack of better words, enlightenment. Although I think they use a different term. That is sort of what we would see it as now. Whereas the Pythagoreans, yes, that is that Pythagoras, <laughs> the one with the uh, triangles. Uh, they sought mathematics and mathematical theory to hold the key to the universe. So interestingly enough, the Pythagorean theorem was actually one of Pythagoras's theories about the universe. So he looked at that as a way to, to further explore the divine, which I think is kind of funny thinking back on math class. <laughs> Uh, so they were very much in the opposite camp where Pythagoras uh, influenced math as much as he did because he believed it held the soul of divines. So very much you even see in the ancient world, there there's quite a, a stark difference there. But for me, I personally love the idea of unknowable mysteries, but I can also see the value in finding them to be proven. Yeah, and historically speaking, I don't think there would have been such a dichotomy right. as as you as you sort of d- describe. Like, there's those sets that sort of um, pursued understanding through more sort of mathematical scientific means, but we can see that those groups sort of been they may have been practicing what we what was thought of as as magic at the time. There were theories like miasma and humors, which right. we now understand as you know germ theory. So those mm. things kind of were tied together throughout history and it's only more recently that they've sort of begun to diverge as scientific versus magical. Absolutely. I am of the opinion that it doesn't take away from it, it actually adds to it. So recently in my study of hermeticism, I've come across the idea of by studying the cosmos or the natural realm that we are physically in, it gives us incredible insight into the mind of the creator or whatever you might think that is. And I think that when we truly take time to look at the world around us. It's incredible. And that in and of itself, nature in and of itself and the way things interact, like how the cell works, how, you know, prokaryotes work, things like germ theory, even different diseases and pathologies, they're all so incredible and so complex. And that in and of itself is magical. And I think to separate the two does a disservice to seeing how incredible those are. And again, I think it provides insight into the, I don't necessarily want to say limits, but to the, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, basically, I think it provides insight into kind of the limitless availability of our own personal power when it comes to trying to manifest a particular reality for ourselves. I mean, to just see the complexity of the current natural realm, and it gives you a sense of power in terms of the ability that you have to change your own world, life, so on and so forth. But yeah, if no one has any more thoughts on that, we can pop it over to the next question. Does tying things to science lessen the magic? We kind of touched upon this a little bit previously, but again, I really don't think so. (laughs) I know I have some friends who say that the saying that magic is simply science not yet understood is cliche and not entirely accurate. Uh, But I agree to a certain extent. It's a little cliche. But, you know, the occult is defined as the study of that which is hidden, right? But when we study the natural world and even study the occult, we do it in the effort of making it known or at least being given the resources to understand it better. And there are kind of like Hanny touched upon previously, there are a lot of inventions in our society that centuries earlier would have been considered magic, but it's nothing more than a scientific or technological innovation in current society. 
society. And even though I do think that like science and spirituality should be much more intertwined than they currently are, at the same time, I do think that mysticism offers really incredible insight for scientific advancement and also vice versa. So it doesn't lessen the magic. I just think it provides an alternative explanation and that in and of itself doesn't lessen anything. Not to mention the fact that the science that we use to try and come up with certain hypotheses as to how magic works, they're just hypotheses. We can't really prove anything. You'll often hear a lot of like scientific science professors say that proof in science is not a real thing because it's impossible to absolutely prove anything with certainty. You can heavily support it, which is where a lot of like scientific theories come from. This these hypotheses that are so heavily supported and have yet to be falsified, they are, for the most part, taken as fact. But within the spiritual, like the spirituality kind of realm of things, most of what we talk about is unverified personal gnosis and our explanations for are simply hypotheses that are verified by our own experiences. And trying to find an explanation for that doesn't lessen the magical experience. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's This is something that I go back and forth on quite frequently. In fact, a few weeks back, I was in another debate about this, and I literally changed <laughs> my opinion halfway through the debate. And I've probably changed it back since then, because it's just something, I mean, I think that, that too amusing on this itself is its own sort of... I don't know, mysticism in a way. So it's like, while I can think science definitely enhances our understanding of magic and magic can lead us to scientific discoveries, I think the present culture of science and also the present culture of a lot of spiritual or spiritual communities sort of don't allow that fluidity to exist. It's either no, no magic or no, science is all sort of uh, not quite nonsense but it's all like conspiracy or whatever so it's really difficult when that sort of dichotomy is being perpetuated by both sides one of the interesting is of the of the blending of science and magic that i can think of in my own life is i go to nasa sometimes i've been to nasa like two or three times now and every time i go there it's truly like i cannot define it as any other way than a magical experience despite the fact that nasa is obviously so rooted in science just go Going there and seeing these rockets that have actually gone into space and like spin in that awe-inspiring thing that we can't, it's so hard to describe space (laughs) being here on Earth and just seeing that and like, well, they'll have pictures of me like this star is X X hundred thousand light years away and just... I've cried more times at NASA than I think any other place because <laughs> it's just so beautiful. And and I think NASA, for me at least, is a really good example of the marriage between this sort of awe and mystery while also there is a lot that can be explained with science. Obviously, in order to go into space, you need to have that understanding. So I just wish that there was a way that we were taught to see them, not necessarily as a continuum, but just that they can coexist together. And I often think Western science that a lot of people kind of have a lot of problems with is that Western science tends to explain away the occult instead of trying to exist alongside of it. Or people, conversely, will see science explaining things as a way to try to disprove their experiences or disrupt their experiences, which in some ways that, uh, that there is a validity to that in both ways. So I, I think a lot of it, too, is a, is a cultural problem of them not coexisting, because in the past, they pretty much 
were in a lot of ways the same thing. I don't know if scientists like truly intend to fully discredit spirituality. But I think part of the issue is that there's like we are so rooted in this idea that science can only be done on something that is observable or quantifiable to some extent. Even if it's a qual if you even if it's a qualitative quantification. Um and in the spiritual community, it's what we're dealing with is not tangible. It's not something you can touch and feel and really even measure to a certain extent. I think that's where a lot of scientists really struggle when it comes to spirituality and seeing the two be connected is because the basics of the scientific method, which is has been created to help us study, you know, phenomena of the universe, trying to apply that to something intangible that you can't measure seems like foolishness. And so I think they explain it away partially through those means, which is unfortunate because I think that spirituality has a lot to offer science if we just took a second to stop thinking it was crazy. But that's another flaw too, right? A lot of scientists think that spirituality, they have a very narrow view of what it is. And instead of talking to people within that particular community to like kind of listen to their side of things and be open-minded, they are just like, yeah, it's crazy. Or, <laughs> you know, they'll see like the pop astrology, which is, you know, not super accurate anyway. And they'll base all spirituality off of those couple things that they've seen. And before I got into the occult, I was the same way. I was like, yeah, spirituality is a bunch of BS. Like it's not legitimate. It's not true. I think when people say it's life changing, they're just being kind of overly dramatic about it. And it wasn't until I actually began to research myself and like read different books and talk to people who had different opinions, and different viewpoints and came at it from a more spiritual perspective that my own view began to change. And I began to see that, you know, I think that there is something more and I don't think the two are as separate as people would have me believe. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I think also the that, that, can, that can also come from um, other occultists. So that might be from people who are very suspicious of science. As Felicity kind of mentioned, there are some people who kind of allude to some kind of conspiracy or there are people who maybe don't quite understand how the scientific method works. So they think you can measure X, Y, Z this many times. And if you have a large enough sample size, then you'll be able to prove something. But actually, there is more that goes into a kind of study design than that. And so I think maybe the divergence of these two things over time has masked the fact that there is actually quite a lot to be shared between the two. We're both arguably looking for hidden knowledge. And um, although not all of spirituality is based in the material realm, there are practices which are quite material. So I can think of herbalism and more nature-based practices where you might go out, make a wheel of the year. You might go out, look at species, look at their interactions, look at how the weather affects the presence of this species, look for when the leaves fall. And you're, you're basically doing ecology at that point. But I guess I, I just think those practices tend to get so diverged because the culture between the two is very much right versus wrong or solid versus ephemeral. And there's, there's a lot more room for harmony, I think. It's really interesting to me that you bring that up. And I completely agree with you. One of my biggest issues with the scientific community and kind of the separation that they try to push between science and spirituality is the homeopathic medicinal realm of herbalism, a lot of scientists just completely discredit the properties that a lot of these herbs and other plants have, when in reality, like, they truly can be helpful and used for very specific circumstances. 
Now, do I think that they can, you know, do miraculous things like cure cancer? No, I don't. Um, I do think that the scientific advances we've made in medicine, like, contribute significantly to the cancer research and the treatment of people who have that disease. But by no means does that discredit (laughs) the usefulness of homeopathy in treatment. At the very least, it can help with symptoms, and that's sometimes the worst part of cancer treatment. So I think we really need to, as a as a scientific community and kind of a community in general, really take a second to like look into how both can be useful, and they both have their purpose in very specific settings. I'm not even kidding. This week I was reading a paper, it was a review actually, about how essential oils can help with bovine respiratory disease in cattle because all of the antibiotic antibiotic strategies have led to resistance. And at first I was kind of sceptical, but actually I was reading it and there, there are verifiable studies. I was like, we've, we've kind of neglected certain um, aspects just because of our suspicion, because let's be realistic, there are kind of grifters out there and there are sort of treatments which are sold as kind of panaceas. And I think that level of suspicion has shut us off to actual legitimate pathways of herbalism, which might be useful. I I will say that I think if you go into spirituality looking scientifically for all the answers, you're going to be very disappointed. But yeah, there is a lot more room for connection between the two that I think maybe we originally might have thought. Right. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And like the whole... (laughs) There's so there is so much in specifically the wellness community from both like the more rigid medical scientific viewpoint and then sort of the more holistic viewpoint that often are pitted at odds. It's interesting because in in several other cultures around the world, they're they're pretty much they're working together. And I think because they're often so pitted against each other, you often come across things where it's like, well, your symptoms are all in your head, which, you know, people get a lot at the doctor. Especially, you know, if you're assigned female at birth, that's a pretty common thing you hear is, oh, it's all in your head. Whereas then you go to like the, some holistic camps and they'll be like, oh, just, you know, drink this essential oil. Just a very bad, full disclaimer, do not do that ever. Please don't. Just as a note to anybody listening, please do not drink essential oils. Yes, do not. Don't do that. Use them very carefully. But I often think that there is, it's, it's, it's always frustrating as like, just for me, for example, as someone with symptoms of various things that has never been able to like find an answer, it's always, I go to one camp and they tell me, oh, just get your energy unblocked. And then I go to the other camp, they're like, oh, it's all in your head. And I'm like, well, now I'm still just here <laughs> with no solutions. So I think especially in, in, in that way, I personally view wellness from a more holistic aspect in the sense of like literally like your your spirit is a part of that as well. And I don't mean to say like anything pseudosciencey, but just that I think we often view all parts of ourselves as being separate when I think, you know, just historically, like you like kind of brought up the uh, miasma and the humors, like those were sort of a very spiritual thing that we ended up being like, oh, there's actually something here. Or, or during the, I think it was the 17th century, during when people first started wearing masks when they had plagues. That's where we get plague doctors from. They're not medieval. <laughs> well, they're not there. Plague doctors are not medieval. <laughs> so uh, if the reason they started wearing those things is because they thought that the bad airs is what spread the virus. And well, they were actually more right. <laughs> than they than they thought they were so think i think there there often is this sort of oh it doesn't exist until it's proven 
as opposed to, oh, I see a lot of people have this experience. Let's, you know, look at it, examine it. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot to be said for something having an effect on your mood or, you know, whatever it might be, even if it's as something as simple as like aromatherapy, right? right? Like it has been shown that certain scents cause people to experience certain moods and it's different for everybody. There's not always like a universal, you know, scent associated with a particular mood or thing, but like that's a very, that is in my mind something that a lot of people consider to be pseudoscience, even though like scientifically there is data to suggest that it elicits a true response from people and animals and so on and so forth. And again, that doesn't make it less of a way to treat something. It again, won't cure anything certainly, but if that's a way to help you feel better during the day is by, you know, putting some diluted lemon essential oil on your wrist and then smelling that to like to make your mood better, by all means, that's a completely legitimate way to improve your mood. And I kind of think the same thing regarding like grounding and centering and kind of these practices that we use within the witchcraft and the occult community, again, those are things that may not have a scientific basis behind them in terms of like though that terminology, but like going outside and walking around for 15 minutes in the sunshine has also been scientifically shown to increase your mood for a variety of reasons. One, just being out in the sun and getting some vitamin D. Like, um, a lot of those things have a scientific basis, but they're not talked about within, like, there's no crossover between the two communities, even though there absolutely can and should be. Yeah, and I think also with things like chronic pain, especially, or even with people who have anxiety and experience pain, even if there is, they can't find a biological basis for your illness, your pain is still real. You're still experiencing very real psychosomatic symptoms. And I guess even if we do assume some of these things are placebo, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't actually utilize them because sometimes that placebo can really improve the quality of somebody's life. So I think it's about disregarding, oh, there's no kind of mechanism for this and saying, okay, but what actually helps this person? Because if this person is living with kind of uh, chronic illness um, and we haven't found a another strategy, then yeah, maybe it is beneficial for them to look at more sort of holistic management if that's what makes them feel better. Well, and again, with the mechanism, like just because we don't know what it is, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah, right. I think that's the other thing is it's a lot of these mechanisms that people say don't exist just haven't been studied. And I think a lot of that is due to the funding issues in the scientific community and this idea of funding only going to research that is useful, hot at a particular moment in time, um, some diseases that have, you know, no treatment or whatever. And I think it's really unfortunate that the study of kind of these mechanisms that are unknown, like they don't get any any funding for further study, which means that people will continue to discredit them, even though there may actually be a mechanistic scientific reason behind what happens. But we'll never know because it'll never be funded because it's not important enough. Right. Yeah, like just to give an example, I have known several people with chronic pain, specifically arthritis, who say that their pain gets worse if it's like rainy because then they do it with the barometric pressure. And there's pretty much not a lot, at least at the time that they were saying this, I haven't done any current research. There wasn't really a lot of research to 
expand on that except to say, huh, this seems to be a common a common symptom. I think it's yeah, uh, they're still not. Yeah, they're <laughs> still like, not. Yeah, I figured as much. So it, it's interesting that sometimes you'll have like symptoms that are reported by multiple people and and sometimes, yeah, because it's not hot, it's not sort of where the funding is, people are like, meh, I don't know. I guess it's all in your head. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 all very frustrating, <laughs> basically. It reminds me of that quote from Harry Potter. Is it from Dumbledore, I think, who said, you know, just because it's in your head, Harry, doesn't mean that it's not real. I think we could use a lot more of that mindset in the scientific community. Anyways, if that's all people have to say on that topic. Yeah. Let's continue. We touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but I think it's worth kind of going back to it. And that is whether some things are better or left unknown. I know, Felicity, you talked about how mysticism is and like the unknown is still really important in your practice. For me, you know, I do think that there are things that will remain unknown despite our efforts. They just lie beyond the realm of being quantified with our current technology. That's not to say that we're never going to understand them, which follows my take of magic is simply science. We have yet to understand. But there's no shame in acknowledging the fact that there are things beyond our capability of understanding. The fact that these things do remain a mystery, I think just adds to the excitement of life. And I don't consider that to be a bad thing. In fact, I think when somebody thinks that they've learned everything or that they know everything about a particular subject, no matter what it is, then you've lost curiosity. And that in of itself, I think is the truest shame. But I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Yeah, that's that um, phrase I've seen recently. It's if you see the bullet on the road, kill him. And yeah, it kind of alludes to the idea of if you, if somebody thinks that they know everything, then they are very probably wrong. Um, and they're, um, they're very, very probably in this sort of more early stages of their path. I, I do agree. I think, I think that not everything is knowable. And I think that you'll probably drive yourself mad if you consider everything it has to have a mechanism, everything has to be understandable. That said... I think a healthy sense of curiosity and a kind of scientific approach to your practice is um, something that's really useful and you should, you know, you should try and discover, you should try and validate, you should try and reproduce things because that way you'll understand a little bit more about yourself and the world and I think that's really valuable. Yeah, so for me it's interesting because it's like I don't necessarily think that certain things are quote better left unknown because I, I, I sort of jumping off what other people have said, I also don't think everything can be known or, or quantified. Uh, some things are definitely better left uncreated. <laughs> uh, that's for sure. Sort of the the, that's uh, for the, sure. the Jurassic Park quote. Uh, they were try, too busy trying to see if they could. They didn't stop to think if they should. But I, yeah, I don't think that there's... Yeah, I definitely don't have anything wrong with the pursuit of knowledge or trying to theorize about the occult or just the world around you in general. My problem lies in sort of what everyone else has been saying is sort of thinking that you can possibly know everything. I don't think I don't think that's an interesting way to live your life. There are certain things like I don't know. <laughs> like I yeah, there's just, there's a lot of things I don't know. I'm not a veterinary technician. <laughs> I don't really have a desire to be a veterinary technician. It's okay to to trust that some people know other things. I don't know, like I don't know everything about birds, but I still love to watch them fly. I don't really have a desire to, you know, look up, you know, why does this bird do this thing because I like watching them just do the do their thing. It's fun. So yeah, I don't think necessarily things are better left unknown or that it's wrong to pursue theories or or things like that, but I think 
it's humbling yourself and, and knowing that you can't possibly know everything and certain things you will never know, no matter how much you study them. Yeah, I do agree with that. It's it's so funny because I recall specifically in fall, I took a trip up to the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, and it is just full of forest. And during the fall, it was absolutely beautiful. The leaves were all changing colors. The colors were so bright and vibrant, made me very happy on this trip. But I recall feeling very like relaxed and also happy while I was out there. But at the same time, I wanted to know what caused the color of the leaves to change. Like that was my scientific curiosity coming out in that particular moment. But also at that time, I wanted to just revel in the beauty. And so I think there can be a balance between knowing okay, this is what this is what's happening. And fun fact for those who actually want to know, um, leaves change color in the fall because they lose chlorophyll. So they stop producing it essentially. And the other pigments begin to take over. And so whichever one is in higher abundance within the leaf at the time those plant cells, that's what color the leaves will turn. So there's your fun fact for the day. But yeah, so I don't think like understanding the science takes away from the beauty of the magic of how it makes us feel. But it's always fun, in my opinion, to kind of understand nature and how things work regardless. Also, sometimes when I think of science, I guess I I work with uh, microbiomes and a lot of that is thinking about really complex systems, lots of really tiny things working together in a sort of a way that we we actually struggle to to process scientifically. Like the it generates a lot of big data, which we're still wrestling with how how we can actually interrogate effectively. And so sometimes there is kind of a bit of majesty and and awe in that. I'm just like, oh my god! Like even if we understand this, even if we understand all these mechanisms. There are so many thousands of chemical reactions going on and it's all kind of synthesizing into the whole. And that's actually a little bit magical in itself. So, yeah, I think it just comes back to this idea that there doesn't really have to be a dichotomy between the two. I think there can be awe and majesty in both and a kind of sense of connectedness that comes from the natural world, which um, is both fueled by the scientific and the spiritual. And I I just think that's really beautiful. This actually ties really in, like really well with our next topic, which is, and I know, um, Hannah, you touched on this a little bit, but how do we balance the magical and the mundane? In our community, it's very common, at least from what I've seen, to listen, see, and watch people discuss experiences that they've had and claim that something might be magical when in reality, there's probably a much more mundane reason for why they saw what they saw or experienced what they experienced. And by no means would I ever, you know, want to take away someone's magical experience and say and invalidate it because I do think it's very personal for everybody. But it's really important as, you know, witches or occultists or whatever you want to call yourself or just a spiritual person to be able to recognize the difference between something happening just mundanely and something having like something being magical there being a magical response to an action that you took so in this segment of the podcast we really just want to talk about what it means to separate the mundane from the magical how you do it why it's important and any other thoughts that pop up during this discussion I think I've talked a lot already about reproducibility but I'm going to talk about it again (laughs) so yeah I think I think there's um, a sort of a tendency or a trend especially on a lot of social media to see something and assume that it's a sign or assume that maybe it's a calling and part of that is I guess sort of 
down to the commodification of the occult, but that's a topic for another day. But I think looking for how reproducible that is, and particularly as a result of spell work, can affirm whether it's genuinely a sign or whether it is just something that you have attributed a spiritual meaning to. So um, keeping a lab notebook and keeping a note of the sort of conditions that happened around the time of your spell work or around the time of the sign um, and seeing how often that pops up, that can be one really useful method. The other thing to mention is the mundane conditions. Could those have been contributing to your experience? Like there are there are lots of mundane reasons why you might have been seeing lots of feathers outside of your front door, for example. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. And the the other thing is as well is reproducibility in a historical context. So again, I think there's a lot of unverified kind of personal gnosis that floats around on social media. And while you know your unverified gnosis is it's useful to you and it's essential to your practice, if you are participating in a particular cultural practice, I think it's really important to do your homework and do your research and see if that is backed up by that tradition. I particularly see Celtic law being misappropriated in that way, people making assumptions about kind of the fae, <laughs> shall we say. But Hellenism as well, just doing your research and seeing whether this is something that is plausible within the law of your practice can help to establish whether that's obviously genuine experience but a, v- a valid experience so yeah speaking of signs uh, magical and mundane versus mundane is definitely something that i think about sort of you know anytime i do anything at all i mean i think it's sort of it's one way to, to sort of prevent yourself from going going off into the clouds as it were because otherwise you could interpret everything as a sign and uh, just to use a very concrete example of this. So I'm a candle maker. I make a lot of candles. And one of the, it, I, I sometimes when I see people talking about candle signs, like I actually don't really do candle divination just because I, I work with candles so much that I sort of know their flaws and how they affect things. So for example, like they can, candles do weird things just based on how you pour them. So if I pour X candle at 170 degrees and the tin is at 170 degrees, it'll burn differently than if I pour Y candle at 170 degrees and the tin was heated up to 100 degrees. Like that will drastically affect how it burns and what it does. So candles specifically, I mean, everything is a lot of that ways. And one of the interesting things though that that I think of is that even if not everything is a magical sign, I think sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean it's not useful. So, for example, I live right next to a pond, and these the pond has uh, two swan couples, so four swans total, who like to frequent the pond. They're sort of there all the time. And I know this, so if I saw them, I wouldn't be like, oh, that's a sign. But if I saw these swans about, it might make me think of, oh, like, swans are sacred to Apollo. And it might make me think, oh, okay. Maybe I should do something for Apollo. I haven't done it in a while. So even though I know these swans aren't a sign because they live there and they've lived there for years, just even seeing the swan can remind me like, oh, like I haven't done this thing uh, for this god or reminds me, oh, maybe I want to read a little bit more about the swan mythology uh, related to Apollo. So I think definitely not everything is a sign. I think that's something that more people should sort of it's oftentimes, especially when you're beginning out, it's it's easy to forget. But I think that doesn't necessarily mean that not everything has value, uh, especially if you're looking at things from a more psychological model. Like you could do candle divination and you could just even look at it and see if it jogs something in you. 
and whether or not that's a divine sign is sort of what we were all talking about with like reproducibility and confirming and verifying things through other avenues. I do think you bring up a really good point about how mundane things, even though they might not be magical, they can certainly serve as a reminder, right? A reminder to do something, pray about something, you know, whatever it might be for your magical practice. And I think that in and of itself has a lot of value. So I totally agree with what you said there. I do want to briefly touch upon... Felt you mentioned that when you pour candles at different temperatures in regards to like the wax temperature and the, the container temperature, they burn differently, right? And this brings up a really good point about the importance of controls mm-hmm. in our spell work. And this is something that I know um, Warrior Witch Nike has brought up on her channel before. But when you do a spell and you're going to burn something, and if you intend to do candle divination on it, I think this is even more important. It's really crucial to have a control. It's what we would call a negative control, right? So it's this candle that you haven't put any intention into. You haven't done anything to it necessarily. And you let it burn down just naturally and you take notes on it. And you you know, what what is the burn time? Does it leave any wax behind? Is there any unusual pooling? Does it melt weird? At least any observations that you may have. And then when you actually do your spell and you put intention into your spell and maybe you dress the candle with some things, if it burns differently from what you previously noted, those are the things that you would want to focus on specifically, again, if you were doing candle divination, because that's a difference from your control. And, you know, theoretically speaking, you should have a control for every single thing that you add. So if you know you're going to burn a candle with particular herbs and oil on it, you should theoretically have a control for the candle, the candle with oil, the candle with oil with herbs, but I get it. No one wants to waste anything, any product. So I don't think that's totally necessary, but it is important to have controls and in, in any spell work. I think that's true. I also think it's important when doing spell work that maybe doesn't involve something like candles. So for instance, with my money bowls that I do in my personal practice, I will actually make note, like make intentional note of my finances about a week or two prior to doing a money bowl or revitalizing one. And then that's that kind of two week to two week period acts as my negative control, essentially. It's removing the things where I get like reoccurring money or this is kind of like a normal thing that happens on a weekly basis. And then if I do my money bowl and I get an extra couple of things, that to me signifies that, okay, something else is going on here. I'll give an example. So at the beginning of the year, the first week of January, I knew I was going to be back in grad school. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to do a money bowl because who doesn't need more money when you're in grad school? But that very first week of January, I was like, this is going to serve as my control week. So I made note of where funds were coming in, where I would normally get like my paycheck, all of those things. And I did my money bowl that Thursday because Thursday is the day of Jupiter. Jupiter is associated with wealth and finances and all of those kind of things. I kind of took note of the next couple of weeks and I was asked to return to my coffee shop job on the weekends, which I said yes to. And I received a couple of gift cards in the mail from family. One accidental because it came early for my birthday, which it was like really early, but that was very unusual. Um, and I got a couple of other kind of random pieces of money flowing into my life. And I do attribute that to the bull because prior during my control period, nothing like that happened. And so I think those kind of controls are also really helpful to establish what is normal and then things that maybe are abnormal after you do a particular working. 
That's really interesting. I've never actually thought of doing like a, a time control before. Like I've thought about like candle controls or observing things, observing things closely. But I actually really like that idea of sort of doing like if I know I want to do something, mark out a week to week period to see those patterns as they happen and then record the patterns that happens after the spell. That's something that I've never thought of before, but I actually really like. I might I might start doing that. Yeah, go for it. Feel free to steal it. <laughs> it's great. I think another thing too that I see a lot within our community, kind of from newer practitioners more than like advanced practitioners that I've spoken with, when you, when you use plants as a part of your protection for your home or yourself or whatever it might be, I think it's really important to do a trial with your plant as well. For instance, I know in my particular apartment, there are some plants that just do not grow because I have tried (laughs) so many times to get them to grow and thrive in my apartment and they just don't. But if I had bought that plant and immediately tethered a spell to it for protection and it began to die because it wasn't getting enough sunlight or um, maybe the humidity in my apartment isn't good enough for it, whatever the case may be, then I might have attributed that to a magical attack when in reality the environment that it was in was just not the right one for it. And so it's those kind of things that we really have to take into account when it comes to using an item like a plant, which is a living thing in our practice. If you are able to successfully grow and keep a plant alive in your apartment or home or wherever, and then you tether it to a protection spell or a ward, and then it begins to die, I think you can more assuredly say that I think something weird is up and I should probably take care of it. So it's those kind of things that I think coming at spirituality with a scientific lens can be really useful because it can really help you decode what is just like mundane. I have a black thumb. I am not a green person. I kill most plants I come into contact with. If it's just that or if it's truly something magical happening that you need to address and take care of. That's a, that's a really, really good point. I think a lot of newer practitioners uh, need to learn the value of overwatering. <laughs> I'll say no more on that. But that just reminded me of another thing um, in terms of paying attention to mundane conditions. Plants are really variable. So even if you're using things in herbalism, the quantities of the chemical compounds that might be useful to you are going to vary a ton between different plants, even even within different parts of the same plant. So something that can be really useful is, I kind of alluded to this before, keeping some kind of wheel of the year or keeping some kind of diary of the things in your local area and the conditions in which the plants are growing, the location you took something from a plant, and just all those little details, because those ecological things can actually really add up. Scientifically, that can be explained by the um, concentration of chemical compounds, but also magically, it's a really nice way to kind of connect to the land around you and connect to the spirits of the plants, if that's something that you're interested in. So yeah, I think it's a really nice way of just blending those two elements of your practice. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's also a really good point when it comes to herbs. And this might come across rather gatekeepy, and I don't mean it to necessarily, but as a scientist who has seen things go wrong with people who have made tinctures by themselves without understanding kind of the proper procedure, if you want to experiment in herbalism, then I like you really truly need to understand that it is as much of it's as much science as it is magic. And coming at it from a purely magical stance is not safe, even though it might be, you know, more exciting to look at it from that perspective by itself. 
um, you really truly need to be cautious and do your research and ensure you know what you're working with, you know what concentration you have in a particular tincture or a self or whatever you decide to create. Mundanely speaking, it's important to be safe in your practice, and that's a way to do it. Do not disregard safety to enhance your magical experience. Be really careful in that regard. Anyone have anything else to say? Yeah, I'll drop some um, resources in the in the chat as well for you guys, for people to see, so, um, regarding kind of terror and rule of the year, if that's something that you're interested in trying. There are some books that I would definitely recommend on that note. Yeah, I have some resources I will also link <laughs> um, in the description of this episode. There is a book on the kind of combination between science and spirituality, actually two books in particular that I would recommend anybody who's interested to read. And then I'm also actually going to drop an article below related to COVID-19. So if you are listening to this really far in the future, (laughs) um, after this pandemic is over, if it does ever end and you're curious, um, this was an article that was recently published about how we lose the sense of smell. Well, a hypothesis of how we lose our sense of smell and sense of taste in regards to COVID. And I found that really, really interesting. So if anybody is curious, please feel free to peruse the article. I think it's super, super interesting. And if no one has anything else, we'll close this out. Thank you so much for being here with us and for listening. And hopefully you will learn something from this episode and all of these discussions. If you have questions, you can certainly reach out to us. Um, You can find me on Instagram and Twitter as Astrological. I'm happy to answer questions about the podcast or anything that you heard in particular. Hopefully we'll get around to making maybe an Instagram for this podcast specifically, but We'll see if it's up by the time we release this episode. But thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you have a great day. 